Welcome to the Top Order Podcast, Cricketing Hall of Fame again this week as we count down number 80 to 76 in Baldy's Labour of Love. We'll be back after the swish with the first one on tonight's list, number 80, coming up soon. Baldy, across the Tasman, we start again with you for our number 80 on the Cricketing Hall of Fame. Who, we, who have we got in the coveted position of 8-0. I promise there's going to be some non-Australian players in the Top Order Podcast Hall of Fame episode 6 this week, but we're going to start with an Australian again and a leg spinner. So I'm right in my wheelhouse this week. Bill O'Reilly, the pre-war, post-war Australian leg spinner. Just the 27 test matches, but 144 wickets in just 27 tests at an amazing average of 22.59. Strike rate of 69.6. But in just those 27 tests, picked up 11 five-wicket innings in just 48 innings at the crease as a bowler and three 10-wicket matches in that as well. And those are good enough for seventh all-time in terms of 10-wicket matches per 100 tests and ten wicket, uh, five-wicket innings per 100 innings as well. His average above replacement player is plus 5.8 as a bowler, which puts him 25th all-time among all bowlers. So uh, no matter which way you slice it, Bill O'Reilly, an outstanding wrist-spin bowler. Yeah, I guess I'll, I'll leave it to you and Stu and, and, and Binksy to talk about you know his numbers and, and the eye test. But for me, when I was actually looking looking through you know a little bit of literature around uh, Bill O'Reilly, the thing that really piqued my interest was Bradman picked Bill O'Reilly ahead of Shane Warne in his all-time uh, 11 for Australia, which I found incredible. And then you couple that with the fact that there was actually quite a bit of animosity between him and Bradman, a lot of accusations of, of prejudice and selection issues. But at the end of the, end of the day, they thought so highly of each other that they, they did something like that, uh, selecting uh, each other in the all-time 11. So what about that, Baldy? Yeah, it was a really interesting one because Bradman rated O'Reilly as the best bowler that he'd ever played with or against or, or seen play. So, you know, certainly rated the guy. And I guess the challenge that we've got is he's only played 27 tests. So when you compare him to a great like Warren or Anil Kumble or Murali or others that we'll get to in the list, it's very hard to extrapolate that out from 27 tests to 60 to 90 to 120. So... That's the challenge, of course, with these guys in that pre-war, post-war era is that they've got great per-match stats, but how would that then extrapolate out if they were to play a longer career? And it's very difficult to judge that, Stu. Yeah, well, that that was that leads on to one of the questions I was going to ask you, Baldy, because in your write-up and, and certainly in, in a lot of the things that you read about Bill O'Reilly, it seems like he's viewed as kind of the genesis for, for leg spin bowling, certainly uh, in Australia, at least, and, and leading on to... Benno and then Warren and kind of the impact that he had on all of those guys. And I suppose, you know, much like we talked about with Worrell, there's a lot of these guys that we're starting to talk about down at this kind of range here in your Hall of Fame that have, have had such an impact on Test cricket, but we're seeing them, you know, relatively low, I suppose, on this list. Are you starting to kind of have some second thoughts or just ways that you could kind of can reconceive of, of how they might be able to you know, in future in future lists, move up these uh, these these lists. Oh yeah, look, you can certainly make a case that Bill O'Reilly, in particular, Sir Frank Worrell, Sir Clive Lloyd, in terms of their legacy and impact on cricket, um, have a very big case. It's very hard, of course, to quantify that and weigh that against um, you know the numbers and the impact of of longevity. Certainly, you can't take away from players who play in the modern era the fact that they are able to put those numbers up over such a long period of time. 
Um, the real challenge for me with O'Reilly in particular, and guys like George Loman, is they played so few tests that it's very hard to take a sample of you know some less than 30 and then go, okay, well, you can see how that would extrapolate out over 25, 30 series in the same kind of way. Um, so that's where I really ran into the challenge, particularly around guys like O'Reilly, like George Loman, who played so few tests but were so impactful. How can you extrapolate that out? And it's very difficult to do. But you're right, maybe version two has a different weighting around some of these players, and I'm sure... Um, some members of the cricket fraternity and, and, and maternity would, would look at me and say, well, you've got it wrong here in this particular instance. Guys like this should be much higher. Baldy, Benno um, and I guess Bradman's comments are, are pretty interesting. When did Bradman make those comments? That he, you know, he said he was the greatest bowler he ever saw. Is, is that sort of after he's seen the likes of Shane Warne emerge onto the scene? I actually can't remember. It was well after O'Reilly had retired, I think. Um, I'm not exactly sure. Um, but Bradman would have lived to see Shane Warne play, and I'm sure if he had cause to correct himself, he probably would have said something along that along that line, it's, particularly if he was asked. He was pretty forthright with his opinions. But, look, I stand by having watched him in the, the very little YouTube that we were able to see. He still makes the eye test for me uh, a tremendous-looking action, um, had lots of variation, had tremendous control. But the things that were associated with him were things like hostility and um, and aggression and all of these adjectives, these wow words that you don't normally associate with a with a wrist spinner. You normally associate it with a medium-fast bowler. So he was a very aggressive character. I'm not surprised that he had some conflict within the Australian team, but you know his results on the field certainly speak to how, how impactful he was. And you know, the legacy, you can trace a direct lineage. O'Reilly mentored Benno, Benno mentored Warren, all the way down through that Australian, um, you know, legends of leg spin, as it were. And he can, had a pretty unorthodox grip, apparently, guys. Is that something that you, particularly you two spin nerds, have picked up on? Uh, it's not something I'd noticed from the, from the YouTube footage. It's it's obviously not a lot around, but I'm, it's, he's definitely someone that I wish there was more footage of. You know, like Baldy said, there's... Uh, you know, he's got that aggression, bit of attitude, you know, looks like he bowls with a lot of revs. You read the reports and he's trying to, as someone that tries to take a wicket every single ball, you know, it, it made me wonder why we don't see bowlers like him these days, because you think about the seamers and the, the way that they're able to manipulate their slower balls and, and really get some action on some of their deliveries. You know, people like the, the Fizz and even someone like Lockie, who's really, really worked on, um, on his slower ball and, you know, it does. You know, I just Kumble probably is the one that comes to mind when you think about a fast leg spinner. But I feel like he still wasn't quite the same as O'Reilly. Yeah, we've seen them through the eras, though. You know, deadly Derek Underwood. You know, he bowled sort of slow, medium cutters almost, particularly on a sticky wicket. You don't see it a lot nowadays because you don't get the same types of wickets that you got then. Where you got a sticky wicket or a or a bit of a wet deck, and you could really kind of bowl the ball hard into the pitch and and get some and get some movement that way. I think we actually do see them in the modern T Twenty era, but they're but they're somewhere between kind of Mitchell Santner sort of fast darts and someone like Chris Jordan or Dwayne Bravo, who's bowling that slow medium, almost kind of Chris Harris-style pace for New Zealand fans, but just working the ball, just tweaking it a little bit, whereas O'Reilly did the same kind of thing, but really gave it some really gave it some revs with a more wrist spin action rather than kind of rolling his fingers across the seam. So we do see it in the modern era, just in a little bit of a different guise, but you know, it's going to be a long time before we see someone take 145 wickets in just 27 tests again, I think.
Awesome. We'll move on to the next um, on the list. So Bill O'Reilly as well, having an eight-point difference between his test average and uh, first-class average. That's unbelievable, really. 16 average with a ball in first-class cricket. So that, that is almost into those sort of um, Lohman and Sydney Barnes-esque um, statistic. But who's next on the list? You, you guys be happy. It's another spinner. Yeah, the spin continues here on the Top Order podcast. We're going from right arm wrist spin to left arm finger spin. And we're going across to a, a country that hasn't got a member in the, the Hall of Fame just yet. Uh, but Sri Lanka get a go today. Rangata Herath in his 93 tests took 433 test wickets. Can you believe it? That's good enough for 10th all-time at an average of 28 and a strike rate of 60. He had nine 10-wicket match innings, uh, 10-wicket matches, I should say, 34 five-wicket innings in his career. And he did it at a rate of 5.29 10-wicket matches per 100 tests, which is good enough for 11th all-time. And he took 25 wicket innings per 100 innings bowled. So that's good enough for ninth all time. So those big bags of wickets, despite playing uh, his first 22 tests, I think, uh, behind Murali over an 11-year period, the last half of his career, just prodigious, absolutely prodigious contributor for Sri Lanka. Uh, and it has to be said, mostly in home conditions. Look, the, the first thing I want to say about Harath is probably more about your write-up bully and... Um, I think if, if this is an endorsement for, for people to get on and have a look, uh, there's a line in there that says there are lots of sexy spin bowlers these days. So uh, if, if that's not enough to get you to read Baldy's writing, then I don't know what is. But, you know, for I guess for so many years with Harath, I kind of pictured him as a pretty average bowler. You know, he just kind of was that bowler who ran in, put it on the spot, got people out with his slider, did well because, you know, he played in favourable conditions. But then... I don't know. It's really funny because you you look at his stats and he's got four hundred, you know, over four hundred Test wickets. It's absolutely remarkable. And then on the flip side to that, you know, spinners get criticised for for being one dimensional and boring and and all of that kind of stuff. But then when you actually think, if if a fast bowler did that, if someone like you know, if we talk about someone like Glenn McGrath. They get a massive amount of credit for being able to run in, consistently drop the ball on a line in length, and take wickets and just find the edge. So it's it's a really hard one, you know, when you actually think about him because I'm certainly a spinner who who wants to just rip the ball every single time. But Harath just found an, a different way to operate, and it was incredibly successful. Yeah, for me, you're right. For me, he was a completely unassuming fellow. When I actually had a look at his numbers, those are actually, he played a fair amount of test matches and took a lot of wickets. Uh, when I think about him, I thought that, you know, he would he probably fell into that whole Stuart McGill sort of camp where he got stuck behind Shane Warne for a long time. Uh, still had a good test career, but uh, didn't take as many wickets as he would have maybe playing for another nation. Uh, but then when Morley did did retire, he was he was quite a hard act. Morley was a very hard act to follow. But uh, Harath really assumed that mantle well. Uh, he was heavily relied on to take wickets uh, throughout a Test match. And you're right that that home versus away uh, is sort of something that really takes away from him and his record. But I mean, you look at Yasser Shah, you look at Jadeja Ashwin. They're all similar uh, when it looks at when we look at that. Um, maybe maybe that's a bit harsh on Ashwin, but definitely the others, the home and away, uh, sort of imbalance definitely comes back to, to haunt them and um Herath is no no stranger to that. Baldy, a, a question for, for you and, and Lippy, I guess that the two things I'd written down really. I think 
you alluded to it a little bit the sort of almost two halves of his career the sort of playing with Murali and and potentially being in the shadow a little bit of Murali and then I think if you look at that sort of second half of his career some very very well documented players struggling against left arm spin potentially the advent of DRS um, coming into into the four you know famously Kevin Peterson really struggled against left arm spin but he wasn't um, alone and um, how do we sort of look at that in terms of I guess some of the work you've put into the stats here around and um, the influence of DRS on spin bowlers particularly in the last sort of eight or nine years and what's that what that's meant yeah just to highlight those stats so prior to Murley's retirement 11 years he played alongside Murley only played the 22 tests 14 at home eight away didn't average better than 30 in any conditions um, so home average 33, away average 45. But after Murley retired, 71 tests, averaged 21 at home, averaged 36 away, took seven 10-wicket hauls at home. So, yeah, you're right. Players definitely struggled against left-arm spin. I think Rangana Herath, because he was so accurate, probably did benefit a little bit from the advent of DRS, particularly in terms of LBWs, because he was able to keep the ball nice and straight and attack the stumps. He probably benefited from being able to get uh, LBW decisions in particular. I've got no evidence of that, but that's just how I feel. And of course, that second half of his career, 2010 to 2018, also coincided with the advent of DRS. So certainly for Rangana Herath, right place, right time for the second half of his career. Uh, But imagine what he would have been able to do had he have played 18 or 19 years without Murali Duran. Would he have had the same impact? Probably not. He might have benefited from having a, a mentor and a tutor that he could learn from over the first half of his career as well. So who's to say? But certainly he was very prodigious in the second half of his career, that's for sure. Baldy, how, how do we reconcile with that home and away record? Because, you know, I, I, Raj made a good point. It, it is something that, and I think you, you expect that from a, a spinner who bowls in favourable conditions. You expect that they do benefit from bowling in those conditions when they bowl at home they obviously um you know i'm sure that most spinners around the world would would benefit from bowling in those conditions it's just that they happen to be born in sri lanka or india or pakistan but you know we do see him he's got this massive wickets but we see him down here at 79 is is that purely because of the home and away record yeah, you've got to balance it out. I mean, you would expect players to do a little bit better in those Sri Lankan conditions. Of course, many spinners have gone to Sri Lanka and haven't succeeded. So you've got to make hay while the sun shines or when there's a lack of grass on the pitch, then you've got to you know, really take advantage of that. Um, you know, his average of 21.78 at home is better than Murali's overall you know, full career average, including home and away. Um, so, you know, he was really, really good at home. 21.78 is kind of all time. And I think if he had been marginally better away, he averages 36.48 away in 28 tests, you know, strike rate of 75. So that really has hurt his case in terms of that post-Murali retirement 2011 to 2018 kind of era hasn't been able to be as successful overseas and probably why he finds himself in the 75 to 80 range rather than maybe in the top 50. Awesome. Well, we're almost out of time on Rangana Harath and from a left-arm spinner who bowled pretty close to the stumps. We go the polar opposite, a right-arm seamer who didn't even get into the same postcode as the stumps with his delivery stride. Talk us through the next one on the list, Baldy. 
Yeah, this is a really, really interesting one for me. A real surprise when I did the stats on the the top 100 cricketers of all time statistically, this guy really jumped out as a guy I wouldn't have sort of thought of at the top of my head uh, to come into this list. But Makaya Antini makes his way into the Top Order Podcast Men's Test Cricket Hall of Fame at number 78. 101 tests for Makaya Antini for South Africa, 390 test wickets at 28.82, and a strike rate of 53.4, which is pretty good for a fast bowler. Ten, uh, four 10-wicket hauls in his career and 18 five-wicket hauls, and his AARP, or, or his average above replacement player, is plus 2.4, which is okay, but not fantastic. But those 390 wickets over 101 test matches for a guy who really ran in fast and put everything into his delivery stride, um, and he leaves a pretty important legacy in South African cricket as well, which we'll touch on. Oh boy, when I, I have to say to, to start with as well, I was incredibly surprised to see him on the list and and also this high, um, and also that he almost had four hundred Test wickets and and played a hundred Tests. We know when I when I thought about him, I I kind of I guess I don't I never thought about him as the the leader of that attack, and and that's probably why I, I had that in my head, but. You know, when when I was growing up, we uh, mates would talk about bowlers we'd hate to face, and and Tini was just absolutely at the top of my list all the time because he was quick, he angled it into your body, you know, as a as a right hander, and he and he just banged it in, and and it felt like it was always going to to hit you. And I suppose for someone like me who didn't really have much game against the short ball, yeah, just did not someone that I wanted to to be at the other end from uh, at any point. Yeah, I completely agree. I was really surprised by his numbers, actually, especially um, some of those stats here that that Baldy's put out. Ten series with a strike rate under forty-one. That's an incredible, incredible stat. But uh, yeah, I was I was completely surprised by his numbers. He also had an incredible combination with um, Mark Boucher. I came to to learn eighty-four catches uh, as, as a dismissal team, which is third all time. Uh, and then, of course, you know. Uh, leading on from that, uh, there has been a lot of stuff that's come out recently around the racism. One thing that really sort of stuck with me was when he talked about how quite often he felt alone uh, in, in that team environment. Uh, but for someone to come out and perform consistently with other incredible bowlers around them at the same time, uh, uh, what a player, what a man. Yeah, and that's a really important part of this legacy. And, and one of the reasons why I have him in the Hall of Fame and rated where he is, because his his journey from a, a an incredibly humble beginning, Makaya and Tini paved the way for black African cricketers to show them that they can, A, make it to first-class cricket and, and make it onto the biggest stage. But once they're there, be able to dominate world cricket for a period of time. You know, he was one of the premier fast bowlers in that kind of era of his test career. Okay, he was there with, with Sean Pollock. He was there with Dale Steyn. You know, around that kind of era, those guys were around South African cricket. But he was a real trailblazing figure for black African cricketers. And, and we're seeing a lot more of them now coming out and being able to forge, you know, professional careers in South Africa and also for the South African team. So for me, the effect that he had on his fellow countrymen um, we just can't understate that because he was the first black South African to play test cricket, if if my history lesson serves me correctly. And look, I, I think he was the real vanguard for future generations of, of black Afri- African cricketers. Yeah, the, the one thing that surprised me, I think, um, with, with Intini and Baldy, I'm going to test your stats a little bit because we're probably going to look at one or I'm going to raise one here that isn't really on the list. And that's um, his stature. Just five foot nine inches as a seam bowler. He has got to be in the top 10 seam bowlers 
um, under six foot tall in all time. Um, you know, if not the top three, I reckon. Um, didn't yeah, didn't realize that. But then when you kind of just look at the trajectory bowl, the wider the crease, the angle, your reference Raj, that little you know combination with Boucher, you know, I think that you know that angle really probably helped with that and getting right handers to to schnick off. But yeah, um, I thought they're pretty short for a fast bowler as well. So yeah, re really. And that kind of stature and that lion heart really, yeah, really sort of predominant in his career. Yeah, he's got to be sort of top five bowlers under five foot ten. Guys like Goffey and, and Gladstone Small come to mind from England. There are a few others there as well, kind of skiddy bowlers. And that was the thing that I kind of always felt with Mackay and Teeny. Stu, you touched on it, Adam, you touched on it, always at you always making you play. And that's why he had such a good strike rate, I think, because he was forcing the batsman to play all the time. And when he was on song, you know, moved the ball half a bat width, and that was good enough to take the edge and, and then through to Mark Boucher. And uh, there you have it. Look, I, you know, we'll, we'll be wrapping him up just now, but I, I guess I just wanted to make the point that as well as, you know, thinking I'd, I'd hate to face him, he was always someone that I wanted to root for at the same time. A lot of the reasons you talked about before, Baldy, but but always I remember, you know, those stories about him, You could, and you could see it, him running back to his mark. He always just seemed to have a smile on his face. He was, you know, just someone that seemed to have that that energy. And, it, and it's interesting now, Raj, you mentioned before about, you know, those stories of, of hearing that he, he felt alone at times, but it certainly felt like he was such a, a positive character on the game at the time. So, you know, yeah, very, very uh, impressive cricketer and, and someone that if you haven't seen much of him play, you should definitely get back and have a look at. Baldy, um, wasn't a deliberate attempt at a segue, but we go from a five foot nine seam bowler to the other end of the, the spectrum with your next pick. And um, tell us about, uh, yeah, tell us about number 77 on the list. Mate, you've lined that up beautifully. So from Makai Antini, five foot nine, to a guy who must be at least six foot five, maybe even six foot six. Six, six, uh, yeah. There you go. England fast bowler Bob Willis, 90 tests for the Lions. Um, let's have a look at his stats here. 325 wickets in 90 test matches at an average of 25.2 and a strike rate of 53.4. So ne near on exactly the same as Mackay and Teeny's actually, which is, which is real surprising. Never took a 10-wicket bag in his career, but 16 fifers in those 90 test matches. 325 wickets and a new category, I think, that I'd like to introduce at the end of this segment uh, for the Top Order podcast as we go through. Who wants to open up here, boys? Yeah, look, I guess I'll probably go first. The, the late, great um, Bob Willis. Um, a couple of things that spring to mind with me. Um, number one, adding Dylan to his name. So um, RGD Willis, he wasn't born that way, but um, added Dylan into his name as a homage to his favourite mu musician, uh, Bob Dylan. Um, and I think one of those kind of cricketers that actually got away from the game to do stuff outside of the hotel and the, uh, the ground. So, yeah, really, really into his music. Of course, a long-standing relationship with Ian Both, and they, they enjoyed the wineries of um, South Australia, collaborating on the BMW wine, the Both and Merrill um, Willis uh, wine range with famous South African winemaker um, Jeff Merrill. Um, but the other thing I think is just the respect that he got after his um, career with a lot of those England fast bowlers, the Broads and the Andersons and the Goffs, um, known in the media for a bit of a, a grumpy persona. But when you actually sort of unpick that, that was very much put on. And he'd had those conversations with the players about that was the role that he was going to play. 
and sort of New Zealand viewers won't necessarily have seen it, but at the end of a test match on Sky Sports in the UK, there used to be a segment called The Verdict, where Bob Willis would come off the long run and just absolutely eviscerate people who'd had a poor day. Um, but then he was one of the first to take some of those bowlers out for dinner and talk to them and and really help them with his game. And I know certainly Stuart Broad um, crediting him with, um, look, a lot of his success. Um, and yeah, but Border, you alluded to it, but um, yeah, I think you've put an outstanding supporting performance in a test match that eight for 43 coming down the hill at the Kirkstall Lane end. Um, I, I was only two years old when that happened in the um, Botham's Ashes. Um, that, that game's certainly a Willis game more than uh, uh, the Botham game potentially. But um, that was played on TV in every single rain break, particularly when Australia were touring. So um, always used to enjoy seeing him come down that um, Kirkstall Lane end and rough up the Australian batsman in that fantastic performance back in uh, in 81. Binksy and, and maybe Baldy as well. I, I guess I, I never really got to see uh, that much of, of Willis play, but I, I think I remember talking about it when um, when we did our English bowling Mount Rushmore probably 18 months ago now. But when I, when I go back and look at this footage of Willis, I, I can't believe he doesn't have an even better record because you watch him bowl and he's just got every single attribute that you would want as a quick bowler. He's tall, he's got long limbs, fast bowlers, sharp, steepling bounce, good pace. Like it's, you know, that, that headingly spell, it's, it's just devastating quick bowling. And uh, you, know, you mentioned it before, ball, he doesn't have a, a, a 10 for an, in, uh, an international test cricket. And I don't, I don't know. I mean, he's obviously got a very good record, 325 test wickets, average of 25. He hits all those marks that you, you kind of talk about, Baldy. But do, do you think there's a reason why he wasn't even better and, and we're not having him way higher up the list? Yeah, the, the reading that I did, and I, I, he was a little bit before my time, Bob Willis, I have to say I was very, very young when he retired from Test Cricket, but the, the reading that I did was that it, it took a bit to fire Bob Willis up. He could be kind of a little bit laid back. He could, sometimes he wasn't quite into the contest. But what really impressed me and what really changed my opinion of Bob Willis were, as I was doing my research was that 1981 match. That was a huge game for England in the context of the Ashes and the context of being dominated by Australia in that particular you know, kind of series up until that point. Remember, they were 500 to 1 at the bookmakers at one point in that test match. We'll have to do an oral history of that test at some point from the Aussie perspective of that 500 to 1. But, you know, cometh the hour, that was that was his grand final. Not many cricketers get kind of a grand final moment where it's all on the line in a huge series over the course of their career. And, of course, until 2021, there was no grand final in Test cricket. But, of course, now there is, and um, a, a plucky nation from the bottom of the earth has won that. That was the defining moment of Bob Willis's career, and he destroyed Australia. Australia only needed, like, 140 to win that match and were cruising at one for 50 when Bob Willis took it into his own hands and said, right, I am going to turn this around. And he did. He took eight for 43, ran through the Australian top order, um, it was just a tremendous, tremendous performance. And, you know, it will be remembered as Botham's match, but, you know, the Top Order Podcast Award for Outstanding Performance, Supporting Performance in a Test Match in 1981 goes to Bob Willis. And when we get to host our Toppy Awards uh, and when we're big celebrities and all the, all the players and wags run down the red carpet uh, 22 yards worth and attend our annual awards ceremony and we do a retrospective, the 1981 Toppy for Outstanding Supporting in a, in a Performance in a Test Match, it definitely goes to Bob Willis for mine. Just a tremendous performance. Yeah, for me, Bordy, I'll answer your question around why probably the stats, um, you know, aren't necessarily as great when you look at 
um, you know, those test stats in isolation. I think what you've got to remember to a large extent is someone like James Anderson um, has played obviously 160 odd test matches and bowled 35,000 deliveries in test matches. But from a first class perspective, has only bowled 53,000 deliveries. It's still quite a lot of deliveries, obviously. Um, but yeah, what's that? About 18, um, yeah, 18,000 more. And um, Bob Willis, unfortunately, in terms of the way that English cricket was actually sort of um, played at that particular time, he had to do pretty much all of his bowling in first class cricket, um, bowled nearly 50,000 um, deliveries in, in first class cricket um, for a hell of a lot of wickets. Um, but then just, you know, your kind of legs go, don't they, when you, you know, you've had to put that many um, games, you know, 18, 20 games in a first class season um, at less than optimum pace as well. Um, so, yeah, I, I, you know, I think um, just having to literally go back to your county and famously in that Ashes series actually went back and played for Warwickshire in between the first and second tests because um, really gave him a bit of serve and said to go and get some form. Um, so, yeah, absolutely. And, um, yeah, I think that that's going to be the plight of a number of uh, um, bowlers that played their, played their trade in that sort of uh, county treadmill as well. Well, let's wrap up on um, Robert George Dylan Willis. Um, and we can move on to number 76 um, in the list. Bordy, who are we going to here? Yeah, another nation making their debut in the Top Order Podcast Hall of Fame. To Zimbabwe we go. And the wicketkeeper, batsman, captain, and just about everything man for Zimbabwe cricket cricket for a long time there. Andy Flower, 63 tests, 4,794 runs, and an average of 51.54. Top score of 232 not out, 12 centuries, 27 half centuries, and of course, 151 catches and nine stumpings for Zimbabwe. Played all but, I think, eight of his of his 63 test matches as the designated wicketkeeper as well. Of course, he handed the gloves over to Tatenda Taibu for the last four test matches of his career. But just a fantastic record uh, for a guy who, let's face it, didn't have a lot of help a lot of the time for Zimbabwe uh, in that batting order. Uh, just the average, 51 and a half over the course of his test career. Just outstanding. Yeah, great, great batsman. Uh, great wicketkeeper as well. Uh, as you mentioned, uh, he had a few obstacles uh, off off the field as well as uh, on the field. But I guess the biggest one for me is that he played for Zimbabwe, which which maybe that's a bit harsh to put that as, as an obstacle. But um, a couple of the negatives are that uh, he didn't get to face his own bowling. Obviously, he didn't get to face the Zimbabwean bowlers who are, probably were on the, on, the, on the lesser end of the spectrum in terms of, of talent at that time. Um, and he also was a victim of not having to play as many tests because he wasn't playing for those bigger nations. Uh, does that factor in uh, for your numbers at all, uh, Baldy? Yeah, well, he certainly gets a bit of a bump from that average, 51.54. Unfortunately, he, he had he have played for a big three nation, he probably would have played 100 tests, made 8,000 runs. But we can't say that for certainty. He probably would have cashed in against his against his home nation. I mean, you have a look at some of the big scores that he made. 232 not out against India in India in 2000, 2001. He made 199 not out against, uh, against South Africa in Zimbabwe in 2001, 2002. So, you know, he was capable of making those big daddy hundreds. And, you know, when he got in a partnership with someone who could stay with him, you know, he scored a lot of runs for Zimbabwe uh, as it was. But, yeah, you're right. Had he have played in, a, in another country, 
you know, would he have been as successful? I think he would have probably, um, but certainly you can't hold that uh, against him um, because he was a tremendous servant for Zimbabwe cricket and a real figure for a lot of those guys to look up to over the course of their early test history where they struggled quite a bit. One of the things for me that pops out is, in a lot of ways, I think he was a pioneer in terms of the way that he played spin. Um, so, look, I guess I'll go back even to my early days as a club cricketer back in the UK. He was actually the overseas professional for a club that I played at when I was a lad. I'd have been only 13 or 14. And remember seeing him get a double hundred in essentially what's the equivalent of a first grade um, one-day game. Um, so, yeah, got 230-odd, I think. Um and, and pretty much all of it was with variations of the sweep shot. So he, he played the lap, he played the full hard sweep, the slog sweep, the reverse, the reverse lap. And this is going back to, you know, the, the 1990s. And I think that really sort of showed in his coaching career as well. He was such a, a really good thinker about the game in terms of helping players understand their methods to play, um, yeah, to play spin. And Bordy, to your point, I guess it's really difficult to just extrapolate out his stats um, but if you kind of double those, the guy gets nearly 10,000 runs from 120 test matches. Um, and then we're talking about him alongside the likes of a Kumar Sangakara or Mahela Jayawadina, or, you know, in, in those kind of echelons with an average above 50. So um, it's really difficult, isn't it? But um, there's got to be a bump in there for the fact that he averaged 50 playing for a nation where their average first inning score would have probably only been, you know, 220 um, in itself as well. So, uh, for me, you know, I don't know how we um, equate that into future um, calculations, but it's got to count for something, I think. Oh, massively. I mean, the degree of difficulty for Andy Flower was as as high, if not higher, than any other cricketer in this in this Hall of Fame because, you know, he had to face the top order having spent a long time in the field. And this is the thing that I sort of started to dawn on me as I was doing this um, this analysis of Andy Flower is because his bowling attack was relatively weak, he was out in the field for a long, long time, doing a lot of squats up and back and up and back, you know, behind the behind the stumps, having to G up his teammates as captain and as wicketkeeper, and then come in in the top five. Like, that's a hard ask for anyone. There's very, very few players who've done that successfully, and most of them who've done it successfully appear in the Hall of Fame. But for Andy Flower to do that in an attack that struggled, having to spend a long time in the field, maybe even then follow on on occasion, you know, like the degree of difficulty for him was as high as anyone that we've ever talked about, I think. I just want to reiterate the the points that I guess you guys have all made uh, in terms of Flower. I really do think that, you know, a, another career where he plays 100 tests, we are talking about him like Sangakara. And, you know, I guess that's a, a big spoiler alert that Sangakara will be a lot higher up this list. But, you know, we, we I don't think that's going to come as a, a huge surprise to anyone. But, you know, you know, you think, like you say, we, we've talked about a lot of batters that have averaged 50 and things, but that aspect of, of being a keeper as well on top of that and just being able to do it over and over again. And, you know, like you say, Binksy, the sweep, that's all I think about when I think about Flower, just the way he was able to manipulate the field just an incredible player and and it and it's a shame and it's a reflection of how disappointing it is when we don't get to see uh, some of the other nations play an equitable number of tests because you know add another 20 or 30 tests to what Andy Flowers done and and we all benefit from getting to see him play um, Baldy, just a question for you just before we finish. So, you know how we talked about with Hiraf uh, having the home and away negatives for him? 
is there a positives for for um, Andy Flower having such a good all round or record around the world? Like like you said, when he was in India, he scored that massive double century. Uh, he's got he's got good good numbers all the way around the world. Does that give him a bump at all? Oh yeah, hundred percent. I mean, he's only got four thousand seven hundred Test runs, and he's well above a few guys who've got more Test runs to their name. I mean, if if he had if he had the same number of tests as a guy like Ricky Ponting or Shiv Chanderpool. You know, he has the same average as those guys. Ricky Ponting, 51.85. Shiv Chanderpool, 51.37. You know, he's higher in the list than Dennis Compton, who averaged 50. Sir Frank Worrell, who averaged 50. Neil Harvey averaged 48. They all have as, as many or if not more runs than him. So he definitely gets a boost in my mind above some of those guys because of the degree of difficulty in his career and because he was able to do it across uh, multiple environments as well. In Zimbabwe, in India, in you know all sorts of conditions, Andy Flower, tremendous cricketer, and I have absolute massive respect uh, for what he was able to achieve on the, tr- on the cricket field in, in, uh, in sometimes trying circumstances. Awesome. Well, that just about wraps up this episode of the Cricketing Hall of Fame. Another quickfire jaunt around some of the greatest uh, men test cricketers um, to have donned um, the whites and hit um, the red leather um, with the Salix Alba Curlia English Willow. We'll be back on the next episode um, to count down the next five um, in the list. Um, Pronunciations of my Latin pronunciation um yeah please uh, get them into the comment section but we will be back in your feed with more news views and interviews uh, coming up on the top order podcast but for another rainy night in auckland it's good night and god bless and we'll speak to you next week see ya